Welcome to Here's to Your Health with Joshua Lane. Here's to Your Health discusses the current thinking and wellness, bringing you the most influential thinkers in beauty, fitness, and longevity. Your host, Joshua Lane, was part of the Dr. Ann Wigmore team that helped bring wheatgrass, sprouts, and raw foods to a worldwide audience. And now the host of Here's to Your Health, Joshua Lane. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Here's to Your Health. I'm your host, Josh Lane, and my guest is a member of the organization uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, an organization that I am very happy to support as they do remarkably a good work and have been very influential here in the United States and around the world in issues of animal welfare. Our guest is Rachel Bellis, and Rachel is the manager of local affairs in the Cruelty Prevention Department of PETA, that's P-E-T-A, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Rachel, welcome to Here's to Your Health. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to have you on the show. I, I turn out to be, uh, in a very quiet way, kind of a big supporter of the work of uh, PETA and also being... Uh, uh, kind of the same age as Ingrid, uh, Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA. I remember back in the, uh, you know, uh, what what things were like in the 60s and 70s, and then in, I think, 1980, uh, Ingrid formed PETA, and how far we've come as far as the understanding of the mainstream population, whereas at one time they may have simply been dismissive of your ideas. Now they think, oh, no, no, we, we understand the importance of... Uh, animal welfare issues. Is that the way you kind of see it? Yes, I think that from the start of PETA 40 years ago to now, we've come a long way. I mean, we I, I don't think I'm going to be out of a job soon. We still have a long way to go. But yes, definitely, I think that there's been a shift as far as animal welfare, um, animals being eaten for food, animals, you know, for clothing. I think that we've made a lot of progress over the years. Now, what? Now, you. Uh, so our guest is Rachel Bellis, who is the manager of local affairs in the cruelty prevention department. Now, I know I on in, in the state of Virginia, you did work very good work as far as far as prevention of animal cruelty having to do with chaining laws in Virginia. So, please tell us about that. Um, yeah, so we worked with the uh, Virginia State Legislature. We had been working with them for about four years um, to pass chaining legislation. Um, it was passed in 2020, and it basically is extreme weather law so that people cannot tether their dogs when the temperatures are above 85 degrees or below 32 degrees during tornadoes, um, tropical storms extreme weather like that um, and we've been getting the word out and I it's doing a lot of good and um, you know it's an important law that uh, we hope there's a domino effect and other states will pass similar laws uh, like the Virginia one. Our guest is Rachel Bellis who is the uh, manager of local affairs in the cruelty prevention department of the organization called PETA People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Now, this legislation, so in other words, you, in other words, an animal control officer or a police officer 
let's say it's uh, you know Christmas Day and it's freezing in Virginia and they, and some some person has left their dog outside, the police officer would say to them, "Listen, no, you got to bring the dog in." I mean, how does that work? And and also not only how does it work, but what do the police think of this or the legislators think of this? Do they feel that they are indulging some person when they when they do this or do they feel this is a good idea to make the community a safer and better place? Yeah, I mean, I think as we were discussing before, the trend towards uh, animal welfare and protecting animals in our community is definitely improving and legislators are more open to creating laws that protect animals better. Um, and so it, it did take some time, but we did. We we got a lot of animal control on board because really it's a tool for animal control. You know, we want to not only protect animals, but we want to create enforceable laws that are tools for animal control to be able to get onto a property, to educate owners, to, you know, let them know. And, and also the law is... Um, it gives discretion to animal control officers because, you know, 33 degrees is also very cold. And so if they see a dog that is not really for that kind of weather that's tethered, um, you know, they can go on that property and, and let the owners know that they, they can't tether their dog in, in that kind of weather. And, you know, now we're going into summer um, and we have already found a deceased dog in a rural area of North Carolina that we serve, and she most likely died of heat stroke, and she was, you know, chained outside with no shade, no water. And um, so, you know, we, we really want to put laws on the books that hold people accountable and also that animal control and other law enforcement agencies can enforce. Our guest is Rachel Bellis. Rachel Bellis is the manager of local affairs in the Cruelty Prevention Department of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Rachel, so this dog that you discovered had, that had uh, died, what happens to the owner? Is there a fine? Is there a ticket? Is there, I mean, what actually, what, what, what does the law say? Well, you know, it varies from state to state. It would definitely, you know, it's definitely a, a cruelty charge. In Virginia, we would be able to swear out charges ourselves uh, with the magistrate, but in North Carolina, we have to work with law enforcement to do that. And we, we are going to work with law enforcement, uh, local law enforcement, to take out cruelty charges. Um, and it will really be up to the judge to decide. We've worked on many cases like this, and um, some people get jail time, some people get jail time that's suspended. What we really pushed for um, is that, you know, for these folks to not be able to own animals again, because it's obviously, if you are capable of leaving your dog outside in 90 degree weather without any water or shade, and, you know, their chain, leaving them on a chain where they can get tangled, um, if you're capable of doing that once, you're capable of doing that again and animals are just not safe in your care so we always push um, for a ban on owning animals well that makes sense to me uh, my, my okay so our guest is Rachel Bellis Rachel my question for you is I am not involved in the political world at all but I'm guessing that the what you're trying to accomplish with these animal welfare laws are not conservative liberal 
issues there, not political party issues. I'm guessing that you probably enjoy support in both political parties and also opposition, that it's this is somehow not a political uh, question. Am I wrong in thinking that? No, I, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. It, it shouldn't be a, a partisan effort. Really, animal welfare should cross both party lines. And we work with legislators on all sides, of, on both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, we, we just want to get support. And really, when legislators see these cases of animals who have died, um, from whether it's from extreme weather or, you know, at the hands of a, a cruel person, um, you know, they, they understand that laws have to be strengthened and move with the times and um, we need to better protect our, our companions and and so we, we work with, with both sides of the aisle, absolutely. And besides the chaining laws which you've passed in uh, Virginia and in North Carolina, what other recent victories have you had as far as animal welfare is concerned? And also, how do these animal welfare laws protect we humans? Well, for example, um, I work a lot on tethering laws, so um, locally and um, assisting at the state level. For example, we're trying to get more tethering ordinances passed in areas that are local program, where we have a local program that goes into um, areas that are impoverished or low income in southeastern Virginia and northeastern North Carolina, and we help people with their animals. But we're not law enforcement, and so we really can only, you know, help as much as as much as the law allows us to. And so we work with local officials to strengthen their animal laws. So, for example, tethering so people can't tether their dogs outside. Um, sort of basic animal care, just making sure that if an animal is living outside, uh, that they have access you know, to food and water all the time and shade and just sort of strengthening ordinances in some of these more rural areas that, um, you know, m- might have kind of antiquated laws and such. And so we, we try to, to get them updated. And we've had a lot of success. And um, right now, you know, with folks going back to, to work and places opening up and uh, we've, we're putting out this um, PSA that's really about reminding people, you know, to take care of their animals and to put a plan in place when they're going back to the office and, um, you know, getting their animals ready for that transition back to spending several hours a day by themselves. And so that's something that, you know, we're working on right now because animals, um, you know, they get very stressed and even small changes to their routine can um, cause them to act out or cause depression, cause anxiety. And so we, we felt that it was important to remind people of their companion animals and make sure that you know they have a plan in place for them when they head back to the office. Well, that makes that makes perfect sense makes perfect sense to me. My guest is Rachel Bellis, who is the uh, manager of local affairs in the cruelty prevention department of the organization called PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Now, besides the chain laws. Is PETA also helping to provide low-cost and no-cost veterinary services for individuals who really would like to take maybe better care of their uh, companion animals, 
uh, which I guess could be dogs and cats and goats. I mean, a lot of people, you know, enjoy uh, having animals around the house. So do you help them uh, financially? Is that, is, that, is that also a big stressor? So uh, what we do with our local program, we have a fleet of mobile spay-neuter clinics, and we offer low-to-no-cost spay-neuter services. We started the program in 2001, and we have spayed and neutered over 180,000 companion animals since, and a lot of that is no charge. And so we will never turn our backs on an animal in any situation, and we will never turn our backs on someone who wants to get their animal spayed and neutered, but maybe they don't have the, you know, hundreds of dollars that a private clinic would charge. Um, so we do that for free, and we always spay and neuter pit bulls for free because we see them as the most abused and neglected breeds out there right now. Um, so we always spay and neuter pit bulls for free, and we'll even transport animals. So we'll pick them up from home. If, if their guardian doesn't have transportation for them, we'll pick them up. We'll get them spayed and neutered on our clinic and then we'll bring them home. Um, and we, we do provide vet care on a case-by-case basis. Um, you know, we help out people if they're in a jam, but they're, you know, their animal needs some veterinary care. We will definitely help them out. Um, and we, not only in our local program, but we also have a, an emergency response team that responds to hundreds of calls every week from folks around the country and even around, you know, in other countries that need assistance with animals um, and so we, we will help them as well if they have an emergency need and they need to get an animal to the vet, whether it's for an emergency stay neuter or, you know, something has happened, they've been hit by a car. So we, we will always help out as much as we can. Our guest is Rachel Bellis, who is the manager of local affairs in the cruelty prevention department of the organization People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Rachel, we have we have two minutes left. Have you found that this COVID-19 pandemic over the past more than a year, has it been good for animal welfare and the understanding of the treatment of animals, or has it not been good? Um, you know, probably both. We, we did see, with, with more people being at home, we saw a lot of folks adopting companion animals. There were shelters that were doing really well in their adoptions. And that's great. We promote adoption. We always hope that people will go to their local shelter rather than buying from a breeder or pet shop. So we did see a lot of folks adopting. The problem is that if people are not really committed or they haven't put a plan into place, there have been some animals that have been returned to the shelter. There was a story locally here in Virginia Beach where the shelter saw a lot of folks returning their animals that they had adopted and so that's why it's just so important that if you are going to bring a companion animal into your home into your family it's a very big decision it's not something to do impulsively Um, so really think about it think about your schedule think about your lifestyle if you can really dedicate several years you know 14 15 years for dogs and even more for cats um, that they, they're part of your family and they, they need your time and energy and it's not just, you know, giving them some food or pets. It's veterinary care, it's, you know, walks, it's energy, it's time. <laughs> so people really need to think about that. So 
you know, we do hope that people, as they're going back to work, um, you know, please put a plan into place, think about their companion animals, you know, take them for long walks, try to find somebody to walk them in the afternoon if they can't do it. Please don't create your dogs. It's, you know, you're basically putting your dog into a cage. Um, think about them. Think about the stress that they're going to go to, you know, and how they're going to miss seeing you, miss having you home all day. That's right. Yeah, our guest has been Rachel Bellis. Uh, Rachel is the manager of local affairs in the Cruelty Prevention Department of the organization People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Very good organization. I'm very happy to support their really remarkably good and important work. This is Josh Lane. You're listening to Here's to Your Health, and we're going to take a short break, and we will be right back after these important messages. Beljansky supplements and herbal teas, widely used in Europe, now the Beljansky formulas are available in the United States. Used by athletes, fashion models, the former president of France, and those in the know. Beljansky supplements and herbal teas can work for you. Call 212-308-7066. That's 212-308-7066. Visit our center in New York City. Our website is www.maisonbeljansky.com. That's www.maisonbeljansky.com. Feel better naturally. Beljansky Formulas. Your health truly is the greatest gift. At U-Theory, quality of life is at the heart of every product we make. From farm to shelf... We travel the world to source the purest, most efficacious, and clinically studied ingredients to create science-backed supplements that support beauty, emotional, digestive, and physical well-being. All U-Theory products are manufactured at our Southern California facility, ensuring the highest quality standards every step of the way. As a family-owned company, we celebrate the power of human potential with the mission to inspire wellness in all. Try U-Theory Immune Plus Daily Wellness, 100% daily values of vitamin C, D3, and zinc. Go beyond the U of today and catch the U of tomorrow. U-Theory. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Here's to Your Health. I'm your host, Josh Lane, and my guest is the author of a new book, called Lifting Heavy Things, Healing Trauma, One Rep at a Time, Laura Kadrari. And Laura is a, I'll use the word a trainer, but really much more than that, uh, you know, someone who really works with people with wellness, a, a wellness person, really possibly in a very much of a new category uh, of wellness healing. And as wellness has really become... Uh, so important to so many of us. It's interesting how many intelligent uh, thinkers are changing the way we think about wellness. And I believe that Laura Kadrari is one of those new thinkers about wellness. Laura, welcome to Here's to Your Health. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very happy to have you on the show. We're chatting about your brand new book called Lifting Heavy Things, and the subtitle is Healing Trauma 
one rep at a time. Now, what exactly do you mean by this as a concept? Um, so what I'm talking about in this book, uh, Lifting Heavy Things, Healing Trauma One Rep at a Time, is how to turn uh, an exercise practice into more of a healing practice, right? Um, and when I talk about trauma, I am talking not about necessarily a specific, I'm not talking about the narrative, the specific incident. Um, I think of trauma is unprocessed nervous system energy when we've been through something that was like too much or too fast, right? So there are a few things we think about as a trauma um, universally, accidents, um, war, assaults, these sorts of things. But really what's traumatic to me may not be traumatic to you and vice versa. So we don't really get into the narrative so much of what is trauma, but how you can use any exercise practice, for me it's strength training, um, to really use that to help you process and move through that experience. Well, that seems like a very interesting idea. And uh, could you please, uh, our guest is Laura Kadrari, who is the author of a brand new book, which I'm happy to recommend, called Lifting Heavy Things. Laura, so uh, please give the listeners of Here's to Your Health uh, your educational background. Sure. So um, I actually, my, my background as related to my work as a trauma practitioner is I am a certified personal trainer and corrective exercise specialist through the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Um, and then I've studied trauma and different trauma healing modalities through some of the biggest experts in the field. I am uh, a somatic experiencing practitioner in training. Somatic experiencing is a trauma healing modality that is a body-based modality that is used by therapists throughout the world um, and is a professional three-year program. Uh, so I'm doing that, um, and that was created by uh, Dr. Peter Levine. I've also uh, done workshops with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, um, who is very well known for his best-selling book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. And I've studied with a number of other body-based uh, trauma teachers. So there's no school to go to to become a you know, singular way to be, there's no singular way to become a trauma practitioner in the sense, um, the trauma-informed personal training. Uh, there are a few of us now, when I decided to become a trauma-informed personal trainer, it was because I could only find one other person in the world doing it at the time, and it was something I had been looking for myself. Right, right. It, it, okay, our guest is Laura Kadrari, who is the author of Lifting Heavy Things. So, Laura, so really this is kind of a, let me say, kind of a brand new uh, way of helping the body uh, be healthier. And uh, I'd also noticed in preparation for the interview that you have an undergraduate degree and you also have a master's degree. And are you still working on a second master's degree from New York University? Yes, I am. I'm currently enrolled in the Counseling for Mental Health and Wellness program at NYU. I do have a master's in public administration um, as well and a background in strategic planning uh, for nonprofits and program development for nonprofits. All right, so you have a really very nice educational background. And is it, is it, is it fair for me to say that, indeed, you are helping to pioneer 
a, a new thinking, a new way of thinking uh, in, in both the counseling world, in I'll say in therapy, which is important to say in, from an academic perspective, but also as far as working directly with clients in a way that other trainers who might be sympathetic, let's say, for example, working with uh, soldiers who have been uh, injured uh, in the wars, uh, you know, they understand that trauma that the soldiers are, are dealing with. So, and you have taken that concept and you have expanded it. Is that, is that fair? Uh, yes. I guess you would say so, yes. All right. So it seems like a seems like terribly important. And also, I do notice through the reading of your book that when when people come to you for uh, training, if that's the correct word, that you really prefer not to hear about the personal experience that really they found so traumatic or experiences they found so traumatic that you feel that they can guard that themselves. That it is possibly better for you as the, as the therapist not to hear that. No, I wouldn't say that I prefer it or that it's better. I would say that I work with clients in a way that the narrative isn't important. Um, I'm working with what's going on in the body. And some clients may want to share. And um, if they check in and they really want to share, I'm happy to hear and listen. Um, <laughs> listening and being just a, a good listener and there for people is completely within the scope of practice of a personal trainer. Um, and But what I encourage people to do is to consider whether or not they really want to share their story. I think um, a lot of the time when clients realize they don't have to explain to me or justify or share that story, it's actually really freeing because there's a lot of um, onus put on trauma survivors to, they feel like they have to prove that they deserve help or treatment. Um, and it can be really hard to share your story again and again. So sometimes it's appropriate, or maybe you want to share a part of your story, and I'm always willing to listen, but I never ask. It's not a requirement um, for anybody to disclose anything to me. Yeah, that, you know, that really sounds like a very wise way uh, to work with people. It's, I tell you the truth, until I read it in your book, and the book is called Lifting Heavy Things with Laura Kadrari, until I read it in your book, I never thought about it as an idea, but to me it makes perfect sense. Now, you also enjoy working out with weights, and you feel that indeed this has been very helpful for you in working with clients. What prompted you to, to work with weights rather than, say, uh, I'll use something like uh, yoga or Pilates or Tai Chi? Did you feel that weights were just like, you know, people thought, okay, we can relate to weights? I mean, what was it? I mean, that's what it was for me, right? So my work, like many wellness practitioners, grows out of my own experience. Um, and over time, this was not a natural thing. I was like a total couch potato, as you saw in the book. I talk about cutting gym class and that sort of thing. I really didn't like being physical, but as an adult, I wound up strength training just for my health and really falling in love with it and eventually really coming into my own power and self-confidence and feeling like really good about being in my body by doing um, strength training and then later barbell sports. And um, unrelated to that, I experienced a trauma and I developed PTSD and 
I then wound up also having another severe back injury. And when I wanted to bring movement into my healing practice, because movement had become so important to me, I found it really hard um, for me to, I didn't feel safe in my body doing yoga. And I didn't feel safe in my body doing a lot of these things that are often helpful to people. And I thought, well, maybe I can bring this same approach that we're bringing to these more commonly thought of healing modalities to something where I feel safe and good, which is in, you know, barbell clubs or the free weight section of a gym. And it took some time, but that's what I figured out. So it's another alternative. And what I talk about in lifting heavy things is you can actually apply this to any exercise. A lot of the time I'm talking specifically about strength training, but I do talk about cycling, and I think I talk about swimming and rock climbing and walking, and I really think you can bring this. um, It has much more to do with how you approach your exercise practice than what the exercise practice is. Our, our guest is Laura Kadrari, who's the author of a very good new book I suggest you uh, read called Lifting Heavy Things. So, Laura, you were saying that for whatever reason, weightlifting was somehow just so easy. In other words, it, just, it just wasn't threatening in any way. And you thought, oh, this is just, I can just do this. Is that it? It just seemed like, just was. is it fun? Is that it? Um, it's, a com- it's actually, you know, I went deeper um, and I uh, to study this cause, because I knew I wasn't alone in finding... Um, Yoga, which is generally thought of as like the healing movement practice, finding it really triggering. I was having a lot of flashbacks and doing yoga and also having a harder time recovering from those moments. Whereas in the gym, I would still sometimes have flashbacks, but less often and it was easier to recover. Um, and one theory is, is the person's relationship to stillness when they are living with trauma. So for some people, you may find stillness or immobilization, very comforting. Like think about how you swaddle a baby, right? Swaddle a baby to help them sleep. They're immobilized, but they're safe and they feel comfortable and safe and good. And there are plenty of adults who feel the same way. And there are people who are living with trauma who feel the same way. But for some people, immobilization is equated with um, fear and, you know, being under attack or threat. And if you have a, a fearful relationship with immobilization, something as still as yoga can actually be very triggering. Um, whereas working with weight and moving your body um, can feel, you know, being able to push against that resistance and move um, in a very strong way can feel safer. Sure, that that makes sense to me. Our guest is the author of a brand new book, which I'm happy to recommend, called Lifting Heavy Things, Healing Trauma One Rep at a Time, Laura Kadrari. Uh, Laura, when you were working with weights, so did you start out with, what, little five-pound hand weights? I mean, how do you, how exactly do you start out with your program? Sure. Um, you know, when somebody comes to me, I meet them where they're at, and that may mean we're not using any weights. Maybe we're using body weight um, and or maybe we're using small weights. And it also has to do with, I use a lot of resistance bands in my work and it has to do with a bunch of different things. It has to do with what are the client's goals? Um, what, what do they want to do? What do they want to get to? So for me, you know, I did a lot of just I started with very basic floor strengthening exercises when I was 27 years old. I had a bad back, 
and I just needed to get stronger. And there were some light weights, and there was a lot of ab work. Um, and then I got stronger and stronger with the free weights, and we would try new things. And then one day, I finally admitted to my own trainer. I pointed to these enormous dudes across the gym doing Olympic weightlifting with the barbell overhead. Um, and this was before CrossFit was like really popular. <laughs> I went into these, and I was like, I want to do that. That's what I wanted to do, right? And so I would show up to the gym with that goal in mind that made it more enjoyable. So what if my clients don't want to use a barbell ever, I'm not going to train them to get them prepared to use a barbell. I have plenty of clients who really love using resistance bands. And so we're going to work with resistance bands or cables. It's also now, you know, we're working remote with a lot of people are at home. What do they have? Maybe all they have is like tote bags and books. We'll work with that, um, and but it's always meeting them where they're at, what they're interested in, and where they want to progress to. Well, that really sounds, you know, like good contemporary thinking about, uh, I'll, I'll use the word counseling, and also, uh, you know, the physical component of counseling, which I think people are starting to recognize there is a physical component. It's not just all uh, emotion. Our guest is Laura Kadrari, who's the author of a very nice uh, book I suggest we all read called Lifting Heavy Things. Even those of us who uh, really uh, maybe, you know, whatever sport we like, uh, if we read this book, Lifting Heavy Things, that we will see that uh, there, there's a lot of merit here in the book as far as, uh, I would say, fresh thinking uh, about uh, uh, w- emotional wellness. Laura, we have about a minute left. How can listeners of Here's to Your Health purchase your new book, Lifting Heavy Things? You can order my book from any of your preferred booksellers, so bookshop.org, amazon.com, um, Barnes & Noble, your local bookshop can order it for you. Um, and you can also find links to all those places and more at my website, which is laurakadari.com, L-A-U-R-A, K-H-O-U, D as in David, A-R-I. Thank you very much. Our guest has been Laura Kadrari, who's the author of a book I suggest we read called Lifting Heavy Things, Healing Trauma, One Rep at a Time. This is Josh Lane. You're listening to Here's to Your Health. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back after these important messages. Your health truly is the greatest gift. At Theory. Quality of life is at the heart of every product we make. From farm to shelf, we travel the world to source the purest, most efficacious, and clinically studied ingredients to create science-backed supplements that support beauty, emotional, digestive, and physical well-being. All U-Theory products are manufactured at our Southern California facility, ensuring the highest quality standards every step of the way. As a family-owned company, we celebrate the power of human potential with the mission to inspire wellness in all. Try U-Theory Immune Plus Daily Wellness, 100% daily values of vitamin C, D3, and zinc. Go beyond the you of today and catch the you of tomorrow. U-Theory. The Beljansky Foundation offers you the scientific approach to healing Used successfully by Francois Mitterrand, the former president of France. The Beljansky Foundation offers you non-toxic, scientifically supported methods to regain your health. Visit the Beljansky Foundation website, www.beljansky.com. 
www.belsky.org. You'll be glad you did. That's www.beljansky.org. The Beljansky Foundation. The information is essential. The Beljansky Foundation. www.beljansky.org. The Beljansky Method. Now in America. www.beljansky.org. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Here's to Your Health. I'm your host, Josh Lane. And my guest is the physician, uh, Daniel A. Kindelera. Dr. Kindelera is an MD, and he has a new book out called Recovery from Lyme Disease, The Integrative Medical Guide to Diagnosing and Treating Tick-Borne Illness. And many of us have heard about Lyme disease, and Lyme disease turns out to be really extremely controversial. Uh, a good friend of mine had Lyme disease about, was diagnosed with Lyme disease about 10 years ago here in California, and the f- other physicians told her that in California, no one has Lyme disease. There's no such thing as Lyme disease in California. So I see that we have really a controversial health problem that seems to affect hundreds of thousands of people each year in the United States. And we have an expert on the subject, Daniel A. Kindelera, who's an MD practicing in Colorado. Dr. Kindelera, welcome to Here's to Your Health. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to have you on the show. Now, your book is really very comprehensive on a really uh, complex and also uh, I will say, I'll use the word uh, controversial uh, subject. And one thing I'm, I'm happy to say about your book, which again is very comprehensive, is that you also notice and recognize in your patients that indeed sometimes when they have a tick-borne illness, they might have other health problems as well, which needs to be addressed. That's, that's correct. You know, um, let's, let's first of all define the scope of the problem, okay? In 2017, the CDC had about 40-some thousand cases reported to them from the Department of Health of the various 50 states. But they do some sort of algorithm, and they realize that only perhaps 1 in 10 get reported. Now, they're saying, so there's 400,000 new cases of Lyme disease a year. However... Those are only cases that fit their very, very strict criteria. And if we utilize clinical criteria, actually there's four to five times more than that. So we're talking well over a million cases a year of acute Lyme disease. And it is now well established that 10 to 20% of these go on to chronic illness, and perhaps even more. And that chronic illness is now referred to as post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, or PTLDS, which is a misnomer because it suggests, it implies that the, the, it's no longer Lyme, that the Lyme is cured and it's, quote-unquote, something else. But it's not. These people still have chronic infection with Lyme, but it's complicated. So let me, you know, you're, you asked about the controversy, so I'm going to break it down right there to the two schools of thought. The Infectious Disease Society of America, they claim that, yes, Lyme is an epidemic, and and most of them, I think, will admit that there is Lyme in, in California, and it's actually endemic in Northern California. And 
they recognize that it's an epidemic, but they say it's easily diagnosed and easily treated. Whereas doctors like myself say, uh, yes, it's an epidemic. It is not so easily diagnosed. It is not so easily treated that it is frequently compli complicated by co-infections. These are additional microbial infections can be transmitted by the very same tick bite because the ticks are a veritable menagerie of, of different bugs so that it's not uncommon for one person to have two or three or occasionally four or five tick-borne infections. And, and these people are very complicated. These are mainly the people who go on to have chronic infection after being treated because they have these co-infections that were not addressed. But then there's a whole other group of people who never saw a tick bite, they never saw a rash, so they were never diagnosed with acute Lyme disease, but then they went on to chronic illness. And these people uh, variously get diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, autoimmune disorders, and neuropsychiatric disorders. So, you know, I'm going to come back to that neuropsychiatric part, but I just want listeners to know that the most common symptoms are fatigue, sleep disorder, cognitive difficulties, typically referred to as brain fog, neck pain, muscle pain, joint pains, weakness, and, and uh sometimes neuropathic pain, and mood disorders. So I want to talk a little bit about these mood disorders or the neuropsychiatric symptoms because they're very common and they can predominate and often be the pre presenting symptom. And you can imagine what happens if someone goes to their doctor and says, well, I'm really anxious and I can't sleep and, and, and I'm depressed. They get sent to a psychiatrist or they simply be put on psych meds. And then all of their physical symptoms are ignored and considered secondary to their mood disorder. But in this case, it's actually the opposite. It's their physical illness is driving their neuropsychiatric symptoms. These people have brain inflammation, and it's resulting in, in anxiety, depression, irritability, and I mean big time. I mean anxiety with panic disorders, suicidal depression, uh, irritability that can lead to rage, and various forms of psychosis and depersonalization disorders and so on have all been reported with Lyme disease and its, uh, its variants, which, which are the co-infections, uh, Babesia, Bartonella being two very, very common ones. And, you know, in response to the, the doctor in California, I just want to point out, <clears throat> excuse me, just want to point out that Lyme disease has been reported in all 50 states, and it's not only very common in the Northeast, but and and the Middle Atlantic, not the Middle Atlantic. I'm sorry. Yes, the Middle Atlantic, but also the Great uh, Great Lakes states, basically where it's more humid, and also the Northwest. And but it's increasingly common in the Southeast, right over to Texas. The driest states like New Mexico and Arizona, those are the ones with the least amount of Lyme disease. But again, it's been reported in all 50 states. And the idea that someone in California can't have Lyme disease because the tick stopped at the border obviously is mashuga. I mean, it's crazy, right? But 
but also, quite obviously, people in California travel. So, you know, I live here in Colorado, where the Department of Health still claims that the ticks stop at the border of Wyoming, that there's no Lyme disease here, despite the fact that veterinarians diagnose it in dogs with some frequency. And, uh, and the truth is that I see patients from all over the country, and maybe half my patients are from Colorado. And among those patients from Colorado, at least 5% of them got it in Colorado. And the Department of Health still denies it. Our guest is Dr. K- uh, Daniel A. Kindelera, who's an MD, who has a very good new book uh, recently published called Recovery from Lyme Disease, The Integrative Medicine Guide to Diagnosing and Treating Tick-Borne Illness. And as you just heard from Dr. Kindelera's uh, you know, a conversation, it seems to be a remarkably controversial diagnosis. Dr. Kindelera, what is the reason for so much animosity towards physicians such as yourself who, who see these tick-borne illnesses in so many of their patients? You know, that, that's a really great question. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a really great question. And, you know, back in 2001, I was in the office of Dr. Sam Danta. He was an infectious disease physician at University Hospital in Boston, part of Boston University. At the time, he may have been the only infectious disease Specialist who is actually diagnosing chronic Lyme and treating it and publishing on it. I'm in his office, and that week, a New England Journal of Medicine came out with three different articles on Lyme disease, which, of course, we'd both read. And I said, you know, how do these flawed studies get published in, in, in a journal like the New England Journal of Medicine, for God's sake? And he said, Dan, never before have I witnessed in medicine where so few people had so much influence and were so wrong. So, you know, that's where it started. There's a few people who are dubbed experts. They got it wrong, but because of ego and financial interest, they're, they're hanging on to their wrong story, and it just gets filtered down, and it continues to get filtered down. You know, I had a, um, a patient, a, a male, he was in his 20s, and he, he uh, finished college and he wanted to be a professional hockey player. And he got whacked in the head. He was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury. He couldn't think straight. But someone thought to get him tested for Lyme and he ended up in my office and he turned out to have Lyme and co-infections and a handful of, of comorbidities. And when we treated him, he no longer had symptoms from a traumatic brain injury, basically his cognitive difficulties all cleared up. He went from there to medical school, and now he's doing an orthopedic residency. So the reason I mention it is because when he was a year student in medical school and he was in my office, I asked him, I said, hey, Charles, what are they saying on the wards about, uh, about Lyme disease? And he said, they think it's a joke. They laugh. They think Lyme disease is a joke. It, it's really, it's really bizarre. Um, like I said, there are financial interests, and um, and people with patents on certain tests and so on. But uh, but I think there's a, an awful lot of ego involved with 
doctors not wanting to admit they got it wrong. On the other hand, I will say more and more people and doctors are recognizing how serious how serious Lyme disease is. I do have I have at least a handful of patients who are doctors, and I have more and more doctors referring patients to me. It's slowly changing, and maybe it'll take until those initial doctors who were considered experts die out before before there's a wholesale change in, in the perception of the medical profession. Our guest is the author of a very important new book called Recovery from Lyme Disease, The Integrative Medicine Guide, to diagnosing and treating tick-borne illness, and that is Dr. Daniel A. Kindelera, who's an MD, who, again, is the author of the new book, Recovery from Lyme Disease. Now, so the testing, the Western blot test and all the tests for Lyme. So in your book, I thought I noticed that you felt that sometimes these tests really were not adequate. So what is a person to do who thinks my God, I've been working in my yard, and suddenly I think I've got these a couple of tick bites, and I'm having symptoms. So what is the next step when a person re- thinks they something's wrong? That's a great question, because in all likelihood, if they see their family doctor, they're not going to have a successful result. So the background is that there is a screening test for Lyme. The screening test should should basically put out a big net. It, it, at least 95% of people of Lyme should be inside that net. And then there may be some people who don't have Lyme. Those are considered false positives, but a very low rate of small, false negatives. That's called the Lyme ELISA test. It turns out the Lyme ELISA test has, in some studies, more than 50% false negatives. Think about that. You're going to miss the diagnosis 50% of the time Think of a pregnancy test that's going to miss the diagnosis 50% of the time. How, how could that test still be there? And again, we come back to who holds patents on these test kits. Okay, and then, and then the next test is the Western blot, as you mentioned. However, the Western blot can be done different ways, and without going into the details, I can say that most commercial laboratories do a lousy job. And I only use specialty labs like one in California where, where you are, that is um, Igenex Laboratory, which has been in Palo Alto, California. And they just do a much, much better test. And again, I, I don't want to get into the technical details of that. So I rely on Igenex Laboratory. There are a few other specialty laboratories who do, who do a good job. And, and it's also a clinical diagnosis. You know, I, when a patient comes in to see me, I spend three hours with them going over their entire medical history. The, the next patient I'm going to see came to me with acute Lyme disease a couple of months ago. I took a history, and I said, guess what? I think you've had tick-borne infections since you were a teenager, and that's why you've had all these problems up until recently when you got a bullseye rash. You know, it it takes a lot of time, energy, and effort. So what's a patient to do? This this was your question. What's a patient to do? And I would suggest they contact ILADS, which is the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, and ask for referral to a, a doctor that's a member. If they called my office, 
for a small fee, we would get them tested. I would call them up with the results and review it for them. So those are the best options. I, I consistently see um, poor medicine when people go to their local doc. Another patient today, you know, went to uh, their doctor after getting a tick bite, a bullseye rash. Six weeks later, multiple symptoms, goes to the family doctor and says, well, the tick bite I got in Florida. And the doctor says, well, there's no Lyme disease in Florida. <laughs> right. well, it turns out it's <laughs> not only California, Florida, right? I mean, there's a lot of Lyme disease in Florida. I have a handful of patients from Florida. It, it, you can't rule it out. You can't rule it no, out by where, where people visited. All you can say, it's more likely in some areas than others. Our guest has been Dr. Daniel A. Kindelera, who's an MD, who has a very important new book written recently, uh, which I just read, which I'm very happy to recommend, called Recovery from Lyme Disease. And Recovery from Lyme Disease is the integrative medicine guide to diagnosing and treating tick-borne illnesses. Again, the physician is Dr. Daniel A. Kindelera, MD, who wrote the book, published recently by Skyhorse Publishing, who has really put out a remarkable number of really nicely done uh, books on wellness. I'm really kind of uh, impressed with how amazing they have been recently putting out these important books. Again, the book is Recovery from Lyme Disease. The author is Daniel A. Kindelera, MD. Happy to recommend the book. This is Josh Lane, listening to Here's to Your Health. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back after these important messages. Have you had your Carlson Norwegian fish oil today? Decades ago, scientists discovered why Greenland Eskimos maintain healthy hearts despite their high-fat diets. The high level of omega-3 oils in their seafood diet protected their hearts. Carlson Norwegian Fish Oil provides those important omega-3 oils. The same omega-3s from cold water fish support maximum brain power, immune strength, joint comfort, and our vision too. Carlson, the very finest fish oil, is a valuable source of the important omega-3s EPA and DHA. Each teaspoon provides a full 1,600 milligrams of omega-3s. And its purity is guaranteed. Try it on salads and popcorn. It tastes like lemon, not fishy. As for Carlson, the very finest fish oil at finer health food stores today. Everyone's talking about no matcha. I mean everyone, not just people who already drink matcha. Tennis players, construction workers, executives, and teachers are making no matcha a part of their day. No matcha has an incredibly rich flavor, is low in calorie, gives you an energy boost without the crash, and contains oh-so-important antioxidants. It's everything your personal trainer wants in your diet. Whether you're an all-star athlete or a weekend warrior, 100% traditionally made Japanese green tea, no matcha. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Here's to Your Health with Joshua Lane. If you have any questions about the guests or topics discussed tonight, please give us a call at 818-707-0005. That number is 818-707-0005. This is Josh Lane. 
On behalf of the cast and crew, I would like to wish you a healthy and safe good evening.